Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today's Thursday, April the 14th, 2022, and this is episode 3075 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great show for you guys today because this is an expert counsel Q&A show, which means it's a show that you guys created. How did you create it? Well... You guys send me the questions for the expert counsel, so that shapes the entire flow of these shows like this. Here's what I've got for you guys today. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, there's an irony that the states with the most tyrannical COVID policies did worse in every measurable way than the states with the absolute most open and free COVID policies. There, there, there's no case that can be made against that at this point. Sorry. I'm sorry. You're wrong if you take the other side. And Dr. Ron Paul will talk about that irony and how ty tyranny almost always fails in, in, in the way that you measure it is to did it do the thing that it even intended to do other than be tyrannical. That's the only thing tyranny's good at. Dan McAdams will talk about how the U.S. intelligence agencies are now actually admitting in public in the open that they constantly lie to the American people. If you're shocked by this, The fluoride in your water is working, and I recommend a filter. And then we hear from Chris Rossini over there about the importance of currency competition and market-derived money. And I will talk about how in free societies the market is always determined for itself what money is. And how fiat, in other words, the government saying this shall be the money, is completely the antithesis of the free market. And it always leads to, well, right back where we start with that crew, uh, Ron Paul's tyranny. Uh, Nick Ferguson will talk about the propagation of running bamboo from cuttings and just pulling runners out and rhizomes out of the ground as well. Really, really easy, actually. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about dealing with a mouse invasion problem and a bad smell. And I'll tell you why. Uh, if you use conventional mouse and rat poison, what's left behind as far as the mouse or the rat, if it's in a place where you can't remove it, will not result in the stink problem. And I think Tim's right when he covers this about the stink problem mainly being mouse waste for this person. This is a crappy problem, pun intended, to deal with. Tim will do his best to help. Ben Falk will talk about thoughts on straw bale home construction, the good and the bad. Patrick Rohrman will talk about choosing a handle material for a knife as a new knife maker. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about how to interview a prospective doctor. And I'll throw in a reminder with that one about direct primary care going along with what Ken says, going a long way to find a doctor that actually puts your needs above bill coding. Yeah. And then I will talk about personally the invisible empire, going back to a quote by, of all people, Woodrow Wilson. And it will be important for me to say this is not Woodrow Wilson is a great guy day. This is a quote that was true then and is true now from Woodrow Wilson, former president of the United States. The quote was, The government, which was designed for the people, has got into the hands of the bosses and their employers. The special interest, an invisible empire, has been set up above the forms of democracy. I will talk about 
what that invisible empire is, how it actually is what people call, without understanding it, the deep state. And how long back in history does this go as a thing and as a true apparatus of power in the United States of America? Again, the quote, get, get it in your noodle, spinning around before we get to my anchor segment, the government, which was designed for the people, has got into the hands of the bosses and their employers, the special interests. An invisible empire has been set up above the forms of democracy. In other words, I can sum that up with a kind of fancy-sounding phrase, regulatory capture, and it's pervasive in everything. Since we're going to end with tyranny, let's start with tyranny. Hearing from Dr. Ron Paul, again on the irony that the tyrannical states did the worst with COVID in every measurable way, how the intelligence agencies are lying, you'll hear that from Dan McAdams and how they're admitting it, and Chris Rossini on the importance of currency competition in market-derived money. But there was a recent study now that said that uh, uh, this is not really top news. Yeah. California and New York were the worst yeah. dealing with COVID. I mean, shocking, shocking. And But the shock is they don't, especially in California, they don't seem to care. Yeah. You know? But this is a real shocker. Florida did one of the best. Now, that that is really strange. But we knew that something, these statistics would come out because we argued that Florida was on the right track. Did they do everything exactly right? No, they're going to come up short. But uh, I don't get too upset with this because I accept the principle that the commies are never going to have perfect socialism and we're never going to have perfect liberty. But we have to have a concept of liberty because that, to me, is the important thing to be able to sort out uh, truth and fiction. You know, the other side has to work with fiction and they have to keep converting people and lying to people. And one lie leads some more lies. One intervention leads to more intervention. So it goes on and on. In a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia even when the intel isn't rock solid. Now, there's a couple of things about this, if you want to unpack it a little bit. First of all, they're admitting this, which is interesting. Second of all, duh, right? (laughs) Because they've been lying to us all the time. They're admitting that the administration is passing off intelligence to the media as fact, things that are of low confidence or even just false information or supposition, they're basically admitting that they are making things up, selling it to the media, which uncritically reprints everything that's fed to them by the administration, our wonderful free press. And here are just a few of the things that that we now know they were fake. They were lying to us. First of all, uh, that there was an impending chemical attack. That's what sparked the whole thing. Russia is planning... A chemical attack, a false flag chemical attack, made up, fake. Uh, China sending weapons to Russia. Remember that was a big thing a couple of weeks ago. Fake, total lies. The other one, and this was big, and I remember watching this when I was at the gym on Fox News. Putin's advisors are misinforming him and misleading him about the war. They're terrified to tell him the truth about how badly it's going. Lies. Uh, Russia's about, this is the big one, Russia is about to produce a false flag video uh, to justify their uh, their invasion of Ukraine. Fake. Lies. They admit that they lie. So a couple of questions this raises, Dr. Paul. First of all, it's illegal for the 
intelligence services of the United States to use their power to propagandize the American people. Uh, we know that's illegal. Uh, and now we know that they're doing it. What does it say about our intelligence agencies? What does it say about us as a society that we allow this to happen? Look how it shaped the perception of this war in Ukraine. Uh, it, sh it shaped everything about you know the perception in the United States of war based on lies. And what does it say about our intelligence community if they allow themselves to be used and abused like this? Can they ever be trusted again? But Russia apparently has tied their currency, the ruble, to gold and natural gas. And it's very significant that uh, Russia has tied to gold. And like you mentioned with Bernanke, Bernanke told us gold isn't money. Do you think, do you think gold is money? No. It's not money. It's Even a, it's if it has been metal. money for 6,000 years, somebody reversed that and eliminated that economic law. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's an asset. I mean, it's the same. Would you say treasury bills are money? I don't think they're money well, either, do, but they're a financial do, asset. Why do central banks hold it? Well, it's, it's the form of reserves. So why don't they hold diamonds? Well, it's tradition, long-term <laughs> tradition. Well, some people still think it's money. Why didn't Russia tie it to platinum or copper or nickel? I mean, if gold is just another dumb rock, as we've been taught by our money masters, that just sits in the ground and doesn't earn interest and it's, you know, it's virtually worthless, why did Russia tie their currency to gold? Uh, the reason is, we know, is you can take a gold coin anywhere on this entire earth and someone will accept it wherever you go. No matter what language they speak, they may not even be able to speak with you or their traditions or their government. You, you don't even have to explain to them, this is a gold coin, this is money, this is what this means. They will take it, they will know. We encourage the competition of money, whether it be gold, silver, Bitcoin, you know, let the market decide. That's how we got to gold and silver in the first place. It was the market that decided. It wasn't imposed from above that everyone uh, must use gold. No. Uh, it was a market money, and that's why it's uh, been around for so many thousands of years. It should be competition. And the government doesn't want competition because they know deep down that they would lose that competition immediately. People would start using something else instead of this dollar that they create trillions and trillions and trillions of, and the value keeps going down. So we don't know what would happen in that competition. The one thing we do know, though, is with sound money, we would not have government in every single aspect interfering in our lives. And that alone would be a total breath of fresh air. So the piece I mainly want to hit on there is a follow-up to Chris's segment out at the end about market-derived money and what that really means. And he did a good job of explaining how gold has the history there and how, you know, you can go anywhere in the world with gold and, and you can you can spend it, you know, assuming that you can have it in a small enough dominant denomination and receive change for the thing that you're buying. That's one of the issues with gold is its divisibility down into find small amounts, which is why we had a bi-metal economy at one point where we were running silver and gold simultaneously because gold had too much value per ounce. So that's why we went into a bimetallic economy. This is why I think Bitcoin is a superior form of money. But like Dan said, let's let it compete. It always has and it always will. Money, you got money, right? And you got currency. And the thing is, what we're really talking about here is currency when we talk about market competition. Now, money can, through market competition, become currency. But many things can become currency through market competition. The reality of what makes a thing a currency is will the majority of people accept it 
is payment for goods and or services. So right now, if you go to, to Moscow, I don't think there's much currency value in Marlboro cigarettes, right, or a pair of Levi's jeans. Since, well, maybe now with the war going on or whatever, but five years ago, it, it didn't do much for you since Russia had opened up to markets throughout the world. But if you went to Moscow in 1985 and you wanted to get a taxi, And taxis are driving by, and a taxi guy doesn't really feel like pulling over, and you held up some ruples in your hand. The taxi went right by, maybe blew the horn and waved to you. But if you hold a pack of Marlboros up, even if the guy didn't smoke, pulled over fast. John Stossel, back when 2020 was a thing people watched, did a whole, I remember this as a kid, watching this in the mid-80s. So at that time, Levi's jeans and Marlboros were better currency, or as most people use the term money, even though I wouldn't use that term to describe them, in the Soviet Union than actual currency, than actual dollars, than actual fiat. And markets always do this. You want to see how things become a currency that here on our daily lives we don't really care that much about unless we personally use them, but that become a currency for others who don't use them because they're exchangeable and fungible? Go to prison. We're back to cigarettes. Commissary uh, credits. Freaking ramen noodles. You can buy a case of ramen noodles for like five bucks, ten bucks, whatever it is now. But in prison, a single package of ramen noodles has a high value, a high currency value, because it lasts on the shelf, and they don't have ready access to it everywhere in every place. So markets always derive their own currencies, and this is the funny thing. The more a government, like prison guards, attempt to restrict an economy, the more this happens. The more competition for currency there becomes. The more that you force a market into an artificial mechanism, we will tell you what your currency is, the more the market, almost like an organism onto itself, fights back, causing people to create their own currencies. During currency shortages... Um, during the turn of the century, the last century, so in the 1800s and the 1900s, the, the, the depression around that time that no one talks about because it got overshadowed later on, 28 years later by the Great Depression, right? 29 years later by the Great Depression. That's when the whole concept of a wooden nickel came up. And a wooden nickel wasn't really a nickel. What it was generally is it's like it was seen like a gift card. So Bob's Barbershop might issue wooden nickels and haircuts are a nickel. So that would bring in more business. Well, if you had a wooden nickel for Bob's Barbershop and you didn't have money, but somebody that you knew had a thing you wanted and they would go to Bob's Barbershop anyway and this would give you a free haircut, they would barter for that because it was exchangeable. And even if they didn't go to Bob's Barbershop or didn't intend to, if they knew somebody who did it, they knew multiple people who did, the more people that used the service, the more likely I'd be willing to take that nickel as payment because I can pass it on somewhere else using it as currency, i.e. money in most people's minds. This is reality. And what you're seeing right now, and I'll save the rest of this for my talk about empire at the end, is the end of an empire, the crumbling of an empire. Because we've had this system in place for a lot longer than people realize. 1913 is a, is a momentous year, but it was just the coup de grace of the Federal Reserve banks. Because we keep talking about the Fed like it is a thing into itself. All it is is an assemblage of bankers. We'll get to that at the end of the show today. Let's go now and talk about something else, the propagation of bamboo. 
Hey there, Nick Ferguson here calling in with another answer for the expert counsel. And this one is from Jim Holmes, and he says, Hi, Nick, can you explain how to propagate running bamboo from both cuttings and division? I have a patchy hedge of arrow bamboo. I need to multiply my plants to fill it in, and I'm interested in cuttings from canes, if that's possible, and digging up some shoots with rhizomes to propagate. Would appreciate your expertise on the subject. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for the question, Jim. And absolutely, it's simple. It's an easy process. But to start out, I'll answer your question in the way that I think will help you and most people in your situation the best. So you want to take your bamboo hedge area and scratch out a straight line about two inches into the soil or about half the depth of whatever the canes are and cut a bamboo comb, the, st- the stalk is called a comb, and lay it in your trench, take a drill, and put a hole in every other segment of the stalk. You know, there's like a, a nodule, a node, and then there's a section that's hollow, and then there's another node, and then there's a section. So every other one of those segments, those sections, and uh, you drill a hole in there, you fill one of those segments up with water, And then go to the next one, drill a hole, fill it up with water, and you cover the majority of the stalk with soil and mulch, and you leave the holes exposed so that you can refill uh, when they start to dry out. And check every few days, refill as needed. The bamboo should create new shoots and roots at those nodes, at those center um, sections And uh, you can just leave it alone to grow into a new row of clumps of bamboo straight in line with your hedge. You could put four to eight of these in a row parallel with each other to create a relatively fast to establish and easy hedge. And then, boom, they're just growing right in place, right where you want them to be. No transplanting needed. You just make a little trench, lay it down there, drill your holes, fill them up with water, Keep them filled up with water so that they have the water to start rooting. Keep them covered up with a little bit of soil. Just you want to keep the grass, this giant grass really, you just want to keep it moist and in contact with soil. That's the easiest thing. The more labor-intensive method is to cut sections of root off of the big clump that each have two to three combs sticking up and transplant those clumps of root to a new location. You'll get more plants sooner with the first method. You'll get larger plants sooner with the second method. Now, I'm working on an updated video course on plant propagation that'll blow your socks off. I'll be giving away my best-kept secrets, some of which are likely million-dollar methods because, honestly, I've never seen them being used in all my years of learning about this stuff. And I have some new techniques that might just drop your jaws when you see them. I was about to give one of them out on this answer segment, but I figured Jack would yell at me for hating money, so I'll be putting it on the course instead. But those two methods are the standard methods that most people use. They're tried and true. They work great. Um, That's what I would do. Speaking of not hating money, I'm headed to Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and maybe Missouri the end of this month, probably dropping by Jack's to visit him for a couple days. So... If you are one of the, at this point, hundreds of people who've been coming at me wanting consulting and I somehow forgot or overlooked your email and you're in one of those states, shoot me an email with consulting in the subject line. Remind me, I'm sorry, Um, sometimes people fall through the cracks 
when I have so many emails, I, I just can't keep track of it all. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to hit all the places on this trip, but you might get lucky and snag a cancellation spot. If not, I'll put you on my notification list to let you know the next time I'm heading back through that area. If I get enough people and I have enough time, I'll make another trip through. Um, and if you haven't heard back from me, I apologize. Just send me another email. I'll do my best to get you added to my list of people to notify when I'm doing a tour. Best to include your address or latitude and longitude for the property driveway or access, just so I have an idea of where in the country you're located. It just helps me with logistics and know who I need to contact. Oh, and just in case you're further north than I've been in a while, I might be headed to North Dakota this summer sometime, so keep that in mind if you're one of those crazy people who live where it hurts to breathe for part of the year. Hope that answer helps you out, dude. Should be pretty easy and simple. They're basically just giant grasses. They spread easily. Just keep those nodes damp and under some shade, and you should have roots and shoots forming in no time. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Well, next up, we have a segment on mouse issues and mouse poo, mouse poo and a crappy problem with Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. Okay, this week, the question is... Hey, Tim, I'm purchasing this house, the house I grew up in, but it has some problems. For as long as I can remember, we've had mice issues that were never seriously addressed. And in the past few years or so, I smelled dead things in the walls during the warm months. Yuck. This was never an issue before, and I often feel I'm the only one who even notices, which I find simultaneously ridiculous and disgusting. My partner and I are pretty confident we know some of the spots the mice are getting in, but is there any particular method or timing we should keep in mind before plugging the holes? There's a crack in the cement along the back of the house and a chunk of wall missing in the garage. I suspect they may enter through that. Trapping a bunch of animals in the wall to die sounds pretty gross to me, but I don't know how else to get them out. Please help. Thanks for all you do. Okay, so what I would say first off is, of course, the big the big issue is going to be the contamination. So the the nasty grossness, you know, the pee and poop that the mice leave behind, that's where you're going to get the real nasty smell. So once you solve getting rid of the mice and hopefully keeping them out, which can be a real hard issue dealing with old houses. But once you get that section that dealt with, so once you get that cleaned up, your biggest concern is going to be hantavirus. So be very careful. I'm speaking from experience. There's been people in my town who have got it and they didn't do really well. So wear N95 mask, cover your eyes. Anywhere that you can breathe it in, be careful. Wet it down before you clean it up. That way the dust particles can't get up and in you anywhere and cover up completely with like throwaway Tyvek coveralls, gloves, that kind of stuff. But just be careful. Then if you want to get rid of the smell afterwards, I've had really, really good luck with Decon 30. It's kind of an all-natural product that hospitals use. kind of has like an iodine-y smell, but it works great. It's available on Amazon. I'll send the link to Jack. Now, back to your actual question about how you're going to get rid of the mice. And it can be a trick. It can be trouble, trust me. But congratulations on buying the house you grew up in. I think that's really cool. Now, mice tend to sleep during the day and roam at night. 
So, and they tend to run along the edges of the perimeter of rooms and that sort of thing. So if you're looking to find out where they're going, you know, get up at night, kind of wander around, shine a flashlight, see if you can find where they're going. Look for signs. You can find their little poop trails because they love to just let it go as they walk along, you know, indiscriminately everywhere. So definitely they're going to be more active at night. So if they're out and around at night, you're better off to plug it off at night because then you've got kind of a 50-50 chance that they're not in your house right now because they're either coming in and running around or they're outside. But if they're sleeping and they're sleeping in the walls or in the house, then you're going to trap them in there. That's going to be an issue. You're going to have a smell for a bit, but that is going to go away. <laughs> so there is that. Now, if you want to plug these holes, the best thing that I like, mice can fit through very, very tiny areas, and they will chew through so much nasty stuff. So I like to use hydraulic cement. If this is cement walls, which it sounds like, the first thing you want to do is chip out anything loose. So get all the loose, powdery, chippy stuff. Get it out of there with like a, a hammer and a, an old screwdriver or an old chisel. Once you've done that, put on some gloves and some goggles and go buy some hydraulic cement. And it's it's a chemical cement as opposed to like a water cement. So basically, as soon as you add a little bit of moisture to it, it'll start plugging and hardening up right away. So just form as much in your hands with the gloves on like putty as you can and then push it all into place. Just do a little bit at a time, and it'll start hardening right away. You can actually use that stuff with running water. So that's how you want to plug them off. Now, if you want something really potent, there's a green rodent side that looks like little Lego cubes. has peanuts mixed in with it. Not everybody likes chemicals, but it tends to be the type of thing that the mice will take. They'll eat. They'll take it back to their den, give it to all the other mice. And then when they die, they tend to dry out so they don't stink that bad. And one more thing that I absolutely love for catching mice are these dirt cheap glue boards you can buy that smell just like peanut butter. I've caught more mice using those than anything else. And once they're stuck to them, they're done. Of course, you got to deal with a live mouse stuck to a peanut butter glue trap, but it works like a charm. And then just get rid of them. Or there's other traps you can look online, kind of the continue one where it's a garbage can full of water, a dowel in the middle peanut butter on a toilet paper roll, and every time they walk out, they fall in. But yeah, honestly, concentrate on getting those holes plugged up, but it can be an issue, and sometimes mice can just be a fight, and it can be really bad. Also, try to find what they're attracted to, why they're coming in, and eliminate that. We had to do that at the farm supply shop where I worked, and that's what really finally fixed them. We got rid of the dog food, kept it outdoors after that, and that really helped. So I hope that works. Also, steel wool, if you need to shove something in somewhere that you can't use cement for, steel wool is a pretty good option. So I hope that helps. Keep sending the questions to Jack, guys. I love these. This is a fun one because I've dealt with mice a ton of different times over the years. And if you want to check out what I'm up to, come by and check out the Workshop Podcast. I'm live Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday evening at 7 Mountain Time. been doing repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. And we're actually starting a book club. We're going to be reading the Going Home series one one volume a month, and then we're going to discuss it and have a live stream, yeah, book discussion. It's going to be kind of fun. So come by, join me, say hello, become part of the community. And guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So this is the one place, this problem, and I had it more with a rat problem here than anything else, that I will use conventional poisons. I'm very, very cautious about it, and it results in... 
a very effective decimation of mouses or rats. I use a, uh, a stick-type poison. It's kind of got a peanut butter flavor, so the little guys eat it. Uh, Old Cobbler is the name. And I also use, if you've been to any commercial locations, you've probably seen them, the, the poison boxes, I guess you'd call them, mouse poison, rat poison boxes. So these are a box that has two keys that go into them. And you have to turn both keys at the same time, kind of like a nuclear launch code to open it. Now, somebody with a hammer could get into these boxes really easy, but it's designed to keep dogs and cats and animals that you do not want poisoned out of it. And it is basically heparin. It's, it, it gives these animals a heparin overdose. It causes them to bleed to death internally. And I, I don't like this, but I had a bad enough problem with it that I resorted to it. And I did a lot of research before I did, and by putting out these boxes, maybe two boxes at a time, with poison in them, and when they're empty, taking a week off. You're only going to have so many dead rodents at a time. They eat a very small amount of it. If your dog were to find one and eat it or something like that, it's going to be such a small dose that it won't be a poison to the dog, unless you had a very, very small dog and he ate quite a few rodents. The beauty of this type of toxin, because of it causes this internal bleeding, When you find a mouse or a rat who's been dead for a while that's been killed with it, it looks like somebody put them in a dehydrator and completely dehydrated them. It's like skin on skeleton, and there is no odor. You still do have odor from waste product, and that you want to get rid of. But my issues were we did have them. We had the cats outside, the dogs outside to kill the outside population. We had them. They had gotten into the house. They were living in our attic. And we put these in a few strategic locations, and it wiped out the problem. Again, I don't like it. I don't use it as a matter of course. But if I see it pop up somewhere, like if all of a sudden I start seeing holes chewed through eggs in my duck house, I'll take one of those uh, boxes, put two sticks in it, and I'll set it up where the, like it's up out of reach of the dogs or the chickens. And, and generally, a single cycle of that, Like just one time and, you know, watch till they wipe it out and wait and see if the problem goes away. The problem's gone. Because when you wipe out the parent mice and rats, if there are any infants, they die, right? So it doesn't take long before everybody who's mobile finds it and it takes a little tiny bit. And it again, I hate it, but I've tried the non-toxic rat mouse poisons and all it did was make fat rats. It's supposed to be like this corn cob shit that expands in their stomach and causes them to dry out and dehydrate or whatever. Uh, it might work for somebody. It never worked for me. I tried it. It didn't work. I went to this method being very careful with how much and for how long and using the boxes and putting them where mice and rats can get, but dogs and cats can't. And I have never had a problem with it, and it's always been effective. You still got to clean up the mess that they've left behind, and Tim gave you great advice on that. Next, Ben Falk on Straw Bell Houses. Hey, Jack and all. Uh, ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question about um, Straw Bale as a high-performance home in, I think you're in the Midwest. Um, straw Bale can be great homes, um, for sure. You know, moisture issues are no more of a problem than with fiberglass or anything else. I know that's what a lot of people jump to, but moisture is a big deal in any home. Um, the problems with straw bale that I've, that I seem to understand them as, and I don't live in a straw bale home, but I've spent some time in them, 
is that it's such a wide wall. I mean, it's usually 14 inches, depending on the bale. Plus, you know, you got to sheath it on the inside and outside. So you're like at least at 16 inches, which is like a castle, you know. I mean, it takes up valuable and expensive real estate on your slab. And it's dark. The wider your walls, the darker your house gets, all things being equal. And that's a significant um, effect, more than you'd think. But you're basically turning every window well into like a little bit of a tunnel. Like, you know, imagine a wall that's five feet wide and how much darker that even gets. So that's a real effect. You have to compensate for that with bigger windows. Not so much more windows. It's better to do bigger windows for various reasons, um, cost-wise, time-wise, performance-wise. Every area, every little bit of room around a window has poor insulation, too, where you're not getting light for that expense because of the framing where you can't insulate. So less bigger windows is usually better. And vertical windows, too, is a better approach. You get more light in for a vertical window. Same window, say there's a 10-square-foot window, you're going to get much more light in if it's vertically oriented than horizontally oriented and near the top of a wall. Think about old factories and schoolhouses. They knew this stuff, especially maybe not in the Midwest, but definitely in New England and in Europe. Um, so I'm not opposed to straw bale by any means, but it it and it would save you a bunch of lumber, except I don't know if load bearing straw bale has really became a viable thing. That was a movement for a little bit. If it's not viable, which I think there's a lot of reasons it wouldn't be because straw bales compress over time, I wouldn't do a load bearing bale wall then you still need lumber. Um, maybe a little less, but it's not, you know, you're not looking to get your structure out of the bale. You're just using it as infill for insulation. I'm a big fan of blown-in cellulose, wood framing, staggered stud, two by six staggered studs, get a 10 inch to 12 inch wall, blow-in cellulose, done. Like, works great. 12 inch wall isn't excessively thick, but it's super cozy. 10 inch might be fine, you know, there's a balance point there. I think I've done 10 inches in the walls and 14 in the ceiling. And even in Vermont, that's really cozy. I mean, I don't know that I'd go any thicker if I did it again. That was with a Larson truss versus staggered stud. Staggered stud, I think, would be a better way to go, though. Um, so that's becoming standard around here for high-performance homes. Just 2 by 6 10 to 14-inch wall, staggered stud, blow cellulose in, maybe 2 by 8 You stagger it so you don't have the thermal bridge. Um, Chris Magwood is super sound. So any information from him, I think is probably gonna be really good. Um, I don't know the other source as well, but I think you're doing good research if you've come across him and, um, he's also in a nice cold climate. So good reference point. And, um, I could, I could talk a lot about, you know, high performance homes, but I think I'd leave it at that. Um, Yeah. Uh, good luck. Sounds like you're on a, on a good path there. I guess one way you can really minimize the light loss in a home with thick walls, whether it's a straw bale or possibly some other form of earth-based construction, would be a lot of lighting from above. So standard skylights would be one option. And then I've seen some skylights that are pretty cool. Um, when you look up, what you see looks like a light. Like a roof, like a, like a standard, like, kind of bold out, can like a big can light. It's like something you, you cut into the roof and you, you put it in, but there's more of like a bulb that comes down. 
And often these can be fed like you can have one roof uh, opening. And it can feed to multiples of these through these tubes with ref reflectors. And they're incredibly bright. Um, and it's all natural light. So what's actually happening is a series of mirrors and direction and deflection within these, these metallic tubes are taking a ton of light in off your roof and then distributing it to this very uh, emitter. So obviously on a day where there's low outside light, heavy clouds or something, you're going to get less. And as far as I know, I, I really never looked at them enough to be sure. I would think that they should have some way to be turned on and off during the daytime, some sort of... Because all it would be is a little internal flapper that basically closed off the light so that if you didn't want a room that bright, you could dim it the way you would lower a shade. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I, I can't imagine somebody builds these without having that as an option. So if you do decide to go this route and you want more lighting, you might want to really think about bringing more lighting in, like Ben said, with long vertical windows, full lit-up sides, south-facing, etc., but also some of that type of technology as well, because from an insulative standpoint, they're very, very effective uh, homes. And there's a lot of ways to go, though. And I just want to say, when anybody looks at building a home, I've seen beautiful homes built with straw bale. I've seen it done with cob. I've seen it done with, uh, can't think of what they're called right now, but the steel and foam panels. Uh, I've seen it done with more conventional construction, but more thought going into it. I've seen geodesic concrete domes. I've seen all types of construction, and it all can be done very effectively, and some is better in different climates. And the one thing I caution people with when they decide they want to build that dream home and they want to use one of these techniques, do not marry thyself to any particular technique. Though I will say that from a standpoint of exit strategy, straw bales have significant advantages over things like concrete domes, which I actually think is a better... The concrete dome home is a better house. It's freaking bomb shelter. It's bulletproof. Tornadoes can go right across it, and you can sit inside and eat popcorn and watch TV, right? Um, but having tried to buy a round house myself and not being able to get funding through a lender because of appraisal issues, a straw bale house will appraise like any other piece of square real estate, That you have. So there's trade offs. Just don't get married to one based on a YouTube video or a romanticized idea. Pick the technology that works best for you. Next up, we have a segment from Patrick Rorman on choosing handle material as a new knife maker. Hey guys, it's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Joel. He would like to know what is a good handle material for new makers? And what are the things that you look for? So I'm going to do a quick overview of what I look for in handle material and some things that are just good to know. So you have lots of different types of handle material that you could use. A lot of them fall into some of the categories, whether it be natural material like wood, stone, um, bone, antler. Then you have synthetic materials like G10, micarta carbon fiber. Um, I prefer to stick with things like wood, some of your more natural materials. The first uh, limited edition knife run that I did, we used G10. G10, I really like it. I like it's durable. It's tough. Um, however, you really need good air filtration. You need to wear a respirator when you're working it. The dust is really nasty to breathe. So I would recommend as a new maker 
to stay away from some of these things or at least, you know, know what you're getting into and be ready to have uh, proper PPE when you're working with these materials. So when you're picking out a material, you need to think about the knife design and the environment in which it's going to be used. So if I'm making a hunting knife, I know that it's going to be getting bloody. It's going to be, you know, getting wet and we need to, you need to have a material that's going to be good for that type of environment. It's going to have a good grip when it's bloody or wet. Probably want a good guard there so people's hands don't slip up onto the blade. Um, so there's a lot of things that come into play when you're picking a handle material. The size of the knife is going to dictate too, you know, kind of what you're going to use for handle material. A well-designed knife should be well-balanced. So if you're working with something heavy for the handle, there's a, there's a couple different ways to accomplish that. You know, part of that's going to be, um, keeping the handle light, um, drilling out extra material out of the handle so that you don't have the weight in the steel. And maybe even, um, you know, coring out your handle just to keep some of that weight, keep that knife, knife well balanced. You just don't want to take away from the, the strength of the handle either. Um, so, you know, these are all factors you're going to think about when you're designing a knife. A lot of it's just going to come with experience. Um, the environment in which the knife is going to be used. If I'm making a knife that's going to be, you know, on the, in the ocean, around salt water, things like that, or if it's going to be in a desert where it's extremely dry, all these things are factors that should be considered when uh, picking out a knife. And so if I'm going to make a, you know, if I'm going to have a wood handle on a knife that's going to go to the desert, um, when you make that, it's good to make sure that wood is already nice, has a low, low moisture content. And, you know, no matter what you do, if it's a wood natural material, it's going to expand, it's going to contract. Um, you know, you want to avoid that. You want to, you want to kind of have it to where it's going to be as stable as possible. And so that's why I send a lot of that stuff off to be stabilized, professionally stabilized. You know, don't try to do it at home. Um, if you're, you know, making a knife to send to somebody that you want to last, the professional, professional stabilization is just so much better than a lot of this home stabilization that people do. So anyways, I think that, uh, I hope this information has been helpful. I really like the wood, the natural type materials. I did enjoy working with the mammoth test that I made for Jack. Um, but I hope this information has been helpful. Hope you get out there and you actually, um, use it, experiment. You're going to learn it's going to be fun. You're going to crack some handles. You're going to, you know, make some and say, I'm never going to work with that material again. But, you know, do some research about whatever handle material that you choose. Sharp bits. Um, if you're working with something that's hazardous, be sure to have the proper PPE and uh, just have fun. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. You know, I'm glad he mentioned the uh, Mammoth Tusk knife he made for me at the end 
Um, because if he didn't, I was going to, and I'm still going to expand a little bit on it. So when I met Patrick and he built that knife for me, Empty Knives was a tiny, tiny fraction of what it is today. It was before we did the, the Founders program and all of that, and, and, and he took it to another level. He was a guy that made a few knives a month for people as custom knives. He approached me about making this knife for me, and I, and I was excited to get it done with Mammoth Tusk. So he was new to his trade. He was good, but he wasn't the master of craftsmanship that I think he has become. He's become a true master bladesmith and, and a true artist over the years, just because experience leads to that. And even though, but he was very experienced then. He was very good then. He was way better in the genesis of his career than most people who have been hobby knife makers for five years or more, uh, you know, that make a couple knives here and there uh, are. And yet when he built that knife, he had to reach out to a knife maker who had experience using fossilized ivory because that's what Mammoth Tusk is, it's fossilized ivory. And so my kind of little add-on just pointing that out is when you're making your first couple knives, pick something easy to work with. Pick you know, a wood or a synthetic that's easy to work with. I, I would hold off on the really exotic material that needs stabilization and needs extra work for a bit. Things that are kind of already in, yeah, kind of they're already scaleish sized, and you just you're cutting them and fitting them and finishing them, and then go berserk from there. But you might want to stay back from you know Cape Buffalo Horn and Mammoth Tusk and things like that, at least in your first couple uh, tries. Otherwise. Good answer from Patrick. And with that, let's hear from Dr. Ken Berry, because you want a new doctor, but you don't want to meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You want a new doctor who actually cares about your nutrition and tests for things like A1C and understands that you can actually adjust that better with diet than a pill, and you don't want to just be written a prescription every time. You don't want the doctor walking in backwards and uh, making a few notes and billing for 100 bucks because you're a code 4 bill. You want someone who's actually in your corner as a physician, What are the questions you ask? Dr. Ken, what do you say? Hello, all you common sense survivalists and preppers. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Patrick. Uh, Patrick is thinking about getting a new doctor, and he says, please describe an interview process you would have with a prospective primary care doctor to see if they would be a good fit for you. What would be deal breakers? What would you especially be looking for? Any finer points for the pros and cons? Excellent question. First of all, for all Jack's listeners, I have a YouTube video called How to Find a Low-Carb Keto Doctor Near You. And in the show notes of that video, there are six websites that you can put your zip code in, and it will tell you how far away from you the nearest low-carb or keto-friendly doctor is and also give you their telephone number and address. So that's a very helpful resource if you're looking for a doctor that understands the power of a proper human diet, then watch that video and put your zip code in. So questions I would ask a uh, prospective doctor uh, would include the doctors on that list because <clears throat> many doctors are just looking for new patients and they'll put their name on any database just to get new patients. So questions that come to mind that I would ask are, doctor, How powerful do you think it is for my health to eat a proper human diet full of ancestrally appropriate foods that are nutrient-dense, that are naturally lower in carbohydrates? In other words, do you think I can make a big difference in my health by changing my diet? Or 
should I just take pills and injections? And you think, well, no doctor's going to say that. But yeah, indeed, many, many doctors currently believe that <clears throat> your diet doesn't make much difference at all, that you're going to wind up having to take pills and injections. That's just how it is as you get older. Also, I would print out and take some things uh, from the Internet to your first doctor's appointment and say, I printed off some articles, doc. I want to ask you a few questions about if you don't mind. Uh, if your doctor says, I don't think your diet really matters, that's a huge red flag. Uh, if your doctor says, eat lots of whole grains and drink fruit smoothies and don't worry about carbohydrates, that's a huge red flag. If they, they seem to be flustered or irritated by the fact that you brought in some articles that you'd printed off or some research studies, that in and of itself is a huge red flag. Back when I had a full-time practice, when somebody brought in something they printed off the, inter the Internet, I took that as a good indication that this person is highly motivated about being very healthy, and they're actually doing extra work as a patient that most patients never even think of doing. I was uh, impressed by that, not agitated by that. So that would be another huge red flag. Uh, on that first visit, ask your doctor to check the full lab panel that I talk about in my YouTube videos. And if your doctor says, well, I don't know why you would want that, that particular test, uh, explain. Say, well, the reason I want my C-peptide checked is it's an excellent proxy marker for insulin production, just as an example. And if they say, well, I don't even know, I wouldn't even know how to interpret that. I'm not going to order that. Your insurance won't pay for that. Uh, and then you're going to say, well, doc, I'm happy to pay cash for it if the insurance doesn't cover it. And if they still give you pushback on ordering labs that you want, that, again, is a huge red flag that not only do they not know, but they also don't care. Uh, that That's the, the twin kisses of death for a, a healthcare provider. It's very common that they don't know. But a good doctor is also still a good student, and they're going to be intrigued and interested, like, why in the world would you want to see peptide? I don't understand. Explain that to me. Uh, that recently happened with Nisha and I when she went to a midwife appointment. The, the midwife said exactly that. And then I gave her about a two-minute answer, and she's like, huh, I'm going to have to look into that. That's a green flag. That's a good sign. But if they're like, why well, don't we even know how to interpret that, and that's dumb, and I'm not going to order it. That's a huge red flag. And then uh, also, if you're going to a new health care provider, take them a copy of my book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, and say, look, if you need to read this book, and if we're going to be have a relationship as, as doctor and patient, you need to be at least aware, if not on board, with the things in this book. Okay, that's what comes to mind right now. Thanks for the question, Patrick. I hope that helped, and thanks to everyone, and thanks to Jack for really trying to help people understand that there is a proper human lifestyle and a proper human diet. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next time. So I know ever since I discovered it for myself, I sound like a broken record when the subject comes up, but one more time, three words, actually four words, I guess, direct primary care physician. Direct primary care. I, I think that you need the side that Ken just gave you, and DPC at the same time. And Ken's short video that I played on Outback with Jack last week explaining how billing coding works for doctors is why. I do not believe that a doctor can run a practice today inside the heavily regulated insurance and Medicaid market and do the things 
that we want a doctor to do for us that Ken is talking about. I don't think those two things can work. I don't care if the doctor is as lily white as the driven snow. It's much to me like when we send a brand new, newly minted, I don't care what party, congressperson off to the House of Representatives. And that person somehow made it through the gauntlet Outside of the icky nature of politics, they were some true outsider. There's Lily Watt is the driven snow. And whether you agree with them or not, they mean what they say and they say what they mean. And they go to D.C. fully with the intention of keeping their promises and not compromising and voting yes when they should vote yes according to their promises and no when they should say no. And they didn't take any dark money and they don't care. And they're going to be who they promised to be. And they really believe that. If you gave them a lie detector test, the day before they showed up at the Capitol building, they passed with flying colors. You've known them your whole life. You know they mean what they say, and guess what happens? Party due system. They get there. They find out about the party due system. They say, I'm not doing that. And they say, well, great. You get to do absolutely nothing. You don't get to introduce bills. You don't get to co-sponsor bills. You can show up on voting day and vote yes or no. That is all you can do. You can't do anything. Here's the price list. When you want to accomplish something, come back and see us. And everybody crumbles and everybody plays the game even ron paul played the party deuce system game and the party deuce system is if you go raise a certain amount of money for the republican or democrat party then there's the things that you can do you can be a committee co-chair you can be a committee chair you can introduce there's literally a price list this is all legal and it's it's found in defining the machine how does this relate to your doctor the system is the poison so if I'm a doctor and every patient that walks into me, we focus first on a battery of basic tests that Ken was talking about and nutritional support. And that's what I do. I'll go broke. I'll go bankrupt. I cannot afford to pay the insurance, the overhead, etc. with that type of billing. I'm billing a, a level two bill 90% of the time because most of the time we shouldn't be prescribing all these medications. And it's amazing to me today that we actually have been convinced that it is a normal state for an average person to take pills their entire life, or even the entire second half of their life. Show me a 50-year-old plus patient today, person today, patient, person today, that's not on maintenance medications, at least two. They exist. They're people like me. They've willfully avoided being led down this path. In general, the vast majority have it. That means we need health insurance, and the whole thing... The other thing, the other pattern this mimics is, well, it's just fertilizer. It's NPK. It's the same molecule. We're just putting fertilizer on the field so the corn will grow. And what do we end up with? We end up with a complete biocide cocktail because we took the first step of compromising on organic matter and soil life. So one creates the problem of the next, and now we have a pest problem, so now we need an insecticide. Now we need to spray for weeds, so now we need an herbicide. And the whole thing spirals out of control once we compromise the first principle of the way plants grow in nature. So when we compromise the first principle of medical care, First physician, do no, do no harm. As soon as we compromise that principle, it becomes corrupted to the point of being irredeemable. And the modern medical system today, for certain cancers and things like that, the treatment is amazing what technology has enabled, and it saves lives. The surgical treatments and options that we have available today are massive, and they save lives. There are drugs that save lives, but there are more drugs putting people in the ground and keeping them out of the ground. 
And a lot of it is cumulative over time. And we have to get outside of that system. And to the person that told me last week and said, I've misquoted you, whatever, I may have misquoted you a little bit, but anybody who looks at the way billing is coded and comes to the conclusion, comes to the conclusion that it wasn't specifically written that way specifically to make doctors prescribe more drugs, is willfully ignorant and or stupid. You pick. It's up to you. But I am sorry. You and, and the guy admitted, yeah, I'm in the industry, but no, no buts. It is impossible to make a man understand something when his paycheck is dependent upon him not understanding it. That's what's going on there. There is no way that that system was developed without the intention to create more drug prescriptions, period, end of story, that's it, I'm sorry, it is what it is. And the way we know that is, go back to the party due system, which is why I used it here to explain this. Where do the laws come from? They come from lobbyists. Where do the lobbyists get the laws? They get, they get the laws, and they get the bills, and they get the bureaucracy. and they get, It's not just the laws. It's also policy driven through bureaucracy. It's all paid for. And who has the most money in that industry? Big Pharma. So what are they going to do? When they send their lobbyists and they use regulatory capture, they're going to make damn sure that doctors prescribe more drugs. That's why there's an entire profession, by the way, for those of you who want to be holdouts on this, there's an entire profession called drug rep, where you go around and get doctors to write more prescriptions for your drugs. So don't give me the bullshit that it's not true. And that actually leads us perfectly into my quote of the day today, which is why I put Ken at the end instead of the beginning like I normally do. The government, which was designed for the people, has got into the hands of the bosses and their employers, the special interests, the invisible empire has been set up above the forms of democracy. Woodrow Wilson. Now, I've seen this quote misattributed in that it's been slightly altered and moved in time and then still attributed to Woodrow Wilson because... It's often used, or various flavors and versions thereof, to show Wilson supposedly expressing regret at the establishment of the Federal Reserve in, in 1913 at the end of his administration. Um, yeah, the problem with this is the quote is from 1902. So this is neither a, a, a conviction or a, a, a clearing of the record for Woodrow Wilson. It just is. It's just what is. The, the important thing to me is I want you to just, I'm going to read the quote again, and you tell me how true you think it is and how much you think it applies to today, and think about the fact that it comes from 1902, which is well over 100 years now. The government, which was designed for the people, has got into the hands of the bosses and their employers, the special interest, an invisible empire has been set up above the forms of democracy. This has been called various things over the years in various aspects of how it entwines into our lives. Uh, it's exactly the same thing that Eisenhower was talking about. He was just talking about a specific piece of it when he described the dangers of the military-industrial complex. The issue is it does go back to the Federal Reserve, and the establishment of the Federal Reserve was a victory for the bankers. Okay, It wasn't the origin of bankers controlling this country. It was by no means the beginning. About the weakest the bankers have ever been in this country was during uh, the A Andrew Jackson administration when they were mostly kicked out of having control. However, they quickly enacted new controls. The 
depression that I talked about, the multiple recessions and depressions from the 1870s through the early 1900s, eventually accumulating in the need for the Federal Reserve, were all bank-orchestrated. And they were a variety of different things, including things like J.P. Morgan leaking that a competing bank was going to fail, not for his bank to have a competitive advantage, but to create a bank run. Uh, you know, It's been that overt and that direct into the banking system. I believe it was a 1909 uh, depression that was caused by that. I could be wrong by a year or two, one way or the other, but it's somewhere around that time frame after 1900, after Wilson made this uh, quote. Um, but it's it's not the only thing. One of the most important industries then as now, but even more important at the time because more people were employed by it. The vast majority of people in the in the country were employed by the agricultural industry, and the banks were creating boom and bust cycles around agricultural loans that farmers needed to buy seed crop to then plant and harvest. And they were orchestrating multiple recessions. There was also the war on silver and gold and the demonetization of, monetization of silver during this time, known as the crime of 18, I believe, 1873, the demonetization of silver, which the entire book, later becoming a movie, uh, the Wizard of Oz was based on the Emerald City, the man behind the curtain who is the banker, the golden road leading to the Emerald City. And then if you've only watched the movie, which literally killed Julie Andrews just to make it completely inside the cabal, um, you don't know the real story. Dorothy did not go to the wizard on the golden road to the Emerald City with ruby slippers. No, that's a lie. They changed it. It made it too obvious for the public in one of their first Technicolor movies. No, Dorothy journeyed on the golden road to the Emerald City to meet the man behind the curtain who really had no power with silver slippers. See how that all plays together. This is how old this is. The Cowardly Lion was uh, a well-known politician of the time in the 1880s. That's, that's where this whole thing came from. This is a very ancient concept that he who controls the money controls society more so than any government. This is why there are various forms of government all over the world, but the most wealthy and powerful people still exercise massive influence. I, and it, it's amazing to me that it's honestly people that are often referred to as tyrants or dictators that do the most to push it out. Um, current dictator de jure, Vladimir Putin, I was recently listening to an interview uh, that Robert Breedlove did with a gentleman named James Davidson. And uh, I liked most of what James Davidson had to say. If you look up the interview on the What Is Money podcast, I'll just tell you, you need to listen to it at at least 1.25, if not 1.5 speed, because the guy... Well, he talks slow, and there's a lot of long pauses like that. In fact, it, it seems to me there's a whole podcast technology to be developed, like, a, like an, uh, an AI-driven uh, thing that can actually determine the two different voices and then speed up the one side on the podcast versus the other, because when I put it at a speed where I could tolerate Davidson then Robert Breedlove sounded like this. He was like, blah, blah, blah. I was like, holy shit. Like, and I had to do it to be able to listen to the guy because I actually wanted to hear what he had to say. But my God, delivery was awful. But he was lamenting the fact that in all his predictions, like this guy literally predicted Bitcoin. He just didn't call it Bitcoin. 
right? Uh, he also predicted social media, which he referred to in his book uh, as narrow casting, and it was a perfect description of it. And the episode I'm talking about is Bitcoin and the Fall of the Nation States with James Davidson. It's again, it's on the What Is Money podcast. It is, I believe, episode 163. Anyway, um, he was lamenting that one of the places that he took his own advice and did invest was he knew the Soviet Union was going to fall. And they invested, he and some partners, in real estate in the Soviet Union, buying up something that was previously owned by the government. And that, of all people, uh, who's a governor or mayor or somehow involved bigwig at the time for the city, not the whole country yet, Vladimir Putin forced these investors to sell out their stakes. And they, they got their money back and made a little bit of money, but they didn't profit extensively the way they expected to at the expense of the falling apart of this country. Now, say what you want about Vladimir Putin, but... If a politician in America did this, they would be held up as a hero. They kicked out foreign investors who were preying on the fall of the nation. Right? Just saying, right? This, even the person that, you know, quote unquote, because this guy does seem to be on our side with air quotes around it, mostly from a standpoint of human freedom and liberation. Still, like, well, because I didn't get the profit, this guy's bad. Right, and that was one of the things he kept bringing up Ukraine and all. Like, like it was like an obvious thing to take a side in. It was one thing that, other than the slow speed, that made this difficult to listen to. But this concept that money buys control, we go back to some of the most ancient wealthy families in existence that are still here today, like the Rothschilds, right, and the Rockefellers, and etc. and and all their ilk. And they have always been at the helm of power. And in some ways, democracy is a terrible form of government. I know everybody wants to defend, especially liberal, modern, Western democracy. Um, if you can buy the education system and if you can buy the media, then you can manipulate a democracy into the most totalitarian state that there is while convincing people that they are free. I'm not a religious person. I don't worry about the devil under my bed or anything like that. But there is a famous quote that the 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 the, the most the, the, the most uh, deceptive trick that 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 Satan ever convinced the world of was that he didn't exist. And that allegory there then into this world where you believe that you have control of society by electing government officials who are going to then follow the best thing for you based on their promises, that's the devil convincing you he doesn't exist. The invisible empire has always been there, and it's why you're not going to make change through an electoral process. Because they're just going to buy whatever fits the marketing of the side in power that advances their agenda at the time. So there are definitely things, if you get the, the, the political right in charge of things in this country, that move more toward modern, shiny economic fascism than the more typical socialism, and both are forms of socialism, by the way, of the left. And so the giant that is the invisible empire, while that is going on, while the Republicans are in charge, and you can mow rhino to the end of the earth, if they're all rhinos, then rhinos aren't a thing. That's just Republicans. That's what you actually mean is Republicans, not Republicans in name only. No, these are Republicans. Of course they don't match their marketing. Neither do Democrats. We don't call them dinos, right? right? We don't do that because we get what we expect because, well, we don't like them. And we want to like the Republicans. I mean, we, I'm not really including me. I'm including you. 
right? So you, since you want them, you make excuses for them. So all that happens is the, the this power apparatus of regulatory capture, of writing the regulations to suit yourself, of controlling the monetary supply, of telling politicians you will lock people in their homes and having them obey you, right? All of that simply gets angled toward the marketing of the Republican Party. Do my pieces on the chessboard that all have an R next to their name right now, do they have cover fire to move over here? Am I, I can put my knight here to cover my rook, right? And if I can set that up, right, I can advance those pieces toward the end game. And so everything swings to the right, then the giant takes its right foot and takes a step forward. Ka-toom. And then everything swings to the left, and then the giant takes the left foot and kachoom. And it's all about getting to the end game. And then the end game, you have to understand, is not an end game. It's a it's an end of a cycle until the next cycle begins. And this has been going on forever, and it's highly rampant today, not just in the banking sector, but since money buys everything in every major sector of humanity. And if you look at the... The, the survival needs of people, this is where they've got the hooks of control in. This is, they've actually created pieces and portions and operations and agencies of government around each one. You've got ag and food. You've got health care, right? So we have to have a giant bloated organization. We've got education. We've got housing, like everything humans need. It's not just a natural byproduct. There's departments of government for it because they're not basic departments of government to ensure that people that own their houses get to keep their houses. They're massive multi-billion, hundred billion, trillion dollar agencies around these things because if we control them, we control the population. So the important thing in all of this is to understand how old this is and how it's not going away even though the current empire is crumbling. To put it in perspective with just kind of modern history, modern history meaning we don't have to go back a thousand years, these people were pulling the levers of power when France was an empire, when Spain was an empire, when, when, when England was an empire, all through the period when the true empire in the world was the United States. And they know when the end of an empire is coming, and they see it as an opportunity to create a new empire and a new impact on everything. And the reason this is important is not because you think you're going to fight it and you're going to stop it, because you're not. Or you're going to change it. These people work on the assumption, and sadly it's a correct assumption, the average person's an idiot. The average person's an idiot who will believe what they're told if you have the right letters, initials after their name, costume on them, badge, whatever. And that people naturally are tribalistic, and if you give people two choices, they'll pick one. They will, they almost, it, is, it is less than 10% of the population, I'm convinced, that truly picks a third option. If you look at the United States, about 20% of people in the United States truly identify politically as independents, and they're not. They're not. They're Democrats or the Republicans that like the, t the term independent, but they always lean to one side or the other. When they do flip, they flip on moderation of two people that really are not that much different. They're very, very similar in everything that they say and do and how they feel that day. But in the end, they flip to one side or the other of the dichotomy. 
And knowing this, the people in power will simply, again, continue to advance the left and right boot of the giant, depending on which side of democracy is in power at any given time. And this is why democracy, as we call it anyway, and if one more person tells me, we're a republic, I'm going to smack you, I'm going to smack you because you know what I'm saying here. No, we're not a pure democracy. No, no other country in the world is either, so shut up. But when democracy is then seductive, because I don't like the way that it is now, I'll change it next time I get to tick a box. My side will eventually be in charge again. And this creates an obedient public. And it's why the people that had a history of power through empire, in the conventional sense, of emperors or kings, gave up what apparent, uh, took this, the approach that it looked like they gave up their power. They didn't give up any of their power. See, the, the, the same guy that I was talking about here on the What is Money podcast, this, uh, this gentleman, James Davidson. Um, Actually, it wasn't Davidson. It was actually uh, Breedlove himself. Robert Breedlove went on uh, to talk about anarchism with uh, Peter McCormack on on Peter's podcast. And and Peter was pointing out how, like, in the past, there would be, like, this king that had, like, only, like, 100 or 200 subjects, like, on the Hawaiian Islands. And basically, he was the dictator, and he had the nicer house and everything like that. And in many ways, that seems like a, a big step away Right from the freedom that we think we know in, in, in the country today. But let's say that you are the king of 200 people, and you're not doing right by them, and they don't have a way to vote you out of office. How long is it before they throw you off a cliff? Or crack your head with a coconut or a stone or a rock? Or stab you to death with a stick or set you on fire? It's not long at all, is it? It's not long at all, is it? Sure, maybe we say, hey, this guy that like does all the work of the king, we give him a nicer house. Sure, but if the guy's actually oppressing his people, and he only has a couple hundred people he's oppressing, he's dead. The entire premise that we live under today, and that was evolved out of the feudal system and then later into democracy, is the enforcer class. We think of working class people of like rich and affluent and, and truly wealthy and, and the divisions in there, and then middle class and upper middle class and lower middle class and the poor, and we think of that as the class of citizenry. But we have a whole different group of classes that are the ones that are actually used to maintain control. We use fear that the poor people will kill you if you don't have enough uh, authoritarian. This creates an enforcer class. And the enforcer class is the government itself, Okay, the enforcement class is the bureaucracy within the government. So we have the governing government, and then we have the bureaucratic government. But then it's all the cops of all flavors, shapes, and forms. And I don't just mean street cops doing road piracy, okay? It's all the cops. So if you look at something like the attorney general of a state, that would be the top cop in the state. So they're part of that class. And if you have a large enough enforcer class convinced that what they're doing is noble and for the good of society, then a small number of people can maintain control. But eventually this will fall apart. Soviet Union, anybody? Remember? Right? Eventually these empires collapse under their own weight, and the people that are really pulling the levers, they sit back, they relax, and they build the next one, like a video game. You know, a great window into this is it only focuses on just the wealth and the game of the stock market, but it really explains the whole thing, is Trading Spaces by Aaron Russo. Eddie Murphy was in it. It's a great one to watch and really understand. Like, Think about that at a much higher level. That's how everything is. And what that means is massive flux is coming. This empire is coming to an end in its current form. 
at the other end of it. Does that mean that China becomes the new empire? Possibly. Jim Rogers thinks so. That's why he's living in China and teach, having his kids learn Mandarin. It, but could it just be an evolution of the United States and a new window in which we observe the world, a new world order, if you want to call it that? Possibly. We don't know. But this is what we do know. Every time these massive shifts occur, people become incredibly wealthy who are just regular everyday people who worry more about building their own lives and building their own empire rather than the crumbling of the empire that never did anything for them anyway. The average person has not benefited from American empire. We haven't. We've been convinced that the reason that you have a nice house on Maple Street and 2.3 kids and a nice school to send them to and all is because of American empire. But what actually made America successful is the, the fact that we have more of a free market in this country than any other country in the world up till very recently. And not all, not perfect, but in spite of the tyranny, the market is that powerful. And it will always be that powerful. So it's up to you now to figure out what do you do? How do you build your empire while their empire crumbles? If you want to know more about that, Leading up to this, I will be speaking on that very subject at three events coming up. I will be speaking at the end of the month uh, at FloatFest, and I'm doing the same talk at all three. Build your empire while theirs crumbles. So FloatFest, the end of the month, down in, 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 uh, near Austin, Texas, in that general vicinity. And then same general area, just a week later, at John Bush's Exit and Build. And then in June, I will be speaking on this same subject at the Self-Reliance Festival with Nicole Sauce and John Willis and Ken Berry and a bunch of other great people up in Camden, Tennessee. So if you want to know more about the how, today I gave you the what, and I'll be doing those three presentations. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys you can help support the show in a variety of ways. One is to become a member of the uh, member of the expert member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. You get a bunch of great discounts. You can learn more just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members to learn more. And next up, you can do the same thing, completely penniless, no, no actual out-of-pocket cost. When you're going to buy something online, just start at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. All my reviews are there, but no matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you help support us. Today's item of the day is on sale today. It's the Cable Matter 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. This is a great little device. Anybody can install it, even me. You just plug it into a wall outlet, and you go from two outlets to six. It does have built-in surge protection and two USB ports. It's got a little light on the top that makes you not stub your toe walking down the hallway if you're using it there. If it's too bright in a particular room at night, throw some tape or paint over the little light thing instead of complaining in the comments on Amazon, which is the only negative comments you'll find on this little device. It's on sale today for $11.99, and I think you will find it is worth every penny. With that, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. It's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.